when we do the radical self-inquiry work, as I'm taking you through right now, the point is not to fix blame. The point is not to say, well, who's the guilty party? The point is to live into that aphorism I noted before, this being so, so what? So the reality for you, which is true for all of us, is that we are motivated by conscious forces and unconscious forces. And in this case, like many people, the unconscious forces that drive you, that caused you to be on the hamster wheel, that caused you to mistake motion for meaning, actually have a lineage aspect to it. And I'm gonna play with the metaphor of staying hungry, being hungry, feeling unsafe, certainly not feeling loved by the community, and therefore not being sure of belonging. Caution. Listening to this podcast may motivate you to make positive changes in your life, identify ways to accelerate your career trajectory, and develop a path towards financial freedom. This is the Career Meets World podcast, and I'm your host, Edward Gorbis, and I've spent the last 10 years focused on helping thousands of people advance their career while in parallel teaching a secret recipe to reach financial independence. And I'm here to share the untold stories of successful people and teach thousands of listeners how to develop a growth mindset. Our minds are malleable and everyone has the power to change their mindset through perseverance, dedication, and a passion for learning. So if you're ready to skyrocket your business and financial literacy, turn up the volume and let's dive right in. This is the Career Meets World podcast. Welcome back, podcast family. Today, I am chatting with somebody who has had a profound impact on my life. He is an incredible human being. His name is Jerry Colonna, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Reboot.io, an executive coaching and leadership development firm and the author of Reboot, Leadership, and the Art of Growing Up, which is arguably one of my favorite books. And for nearly 20 years, he has used the knowledge he gained as an investor, an executive, and a board member for more than 100 organizations to help entrepreneurs and others to lead with humanity, resilience, and equanimity. And prior to his career as a coach, he was a partner with J.P. Morgan Partners, the private equity arm of J.P. Morgan Chase. And previously, he led New York City's based Flatiron Partners, which he founded in 1996 with partner Fred Wilson. Jerry has had a profound impact on executives and leaders globally, and has had a profound impact on me personally. His book, Reboot, is an incredible tale of what it looks like to look inside yourself and find equanimity. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I'm really excited to chat with you. And for those of you who may not know, Jerry Colonna is somebody that I don't know personally well. I'm excited to have this conversation, but he's had a tremendous impact on my life personally this year, as I read his book, Reboot, which is also the name of his practice. And I am excited to dig deeper on it, really understand 
your perspective on life right now, Jerry, and tap into the wisdom, the knowledge, the life experiences that you've been so fortunate to live and go through and really achieve a point of equanimity or the pursuit of equanimity. So let's start there. And first of all, again, welcome. I'm curious from your perspective. Well, let me just say thank you for having me. Of course. Such a pleasure. Jerry, what does equanimity mean to you? What is the root of that word and where did it really evolve into your daily practice? That's a great question. So the, the word equanimity, um, I'll tell a quick little story. I, I was giving a talk in Slovenia uh, before the book came out and I was working with some of the ideas that are in the book. And uh, in the book, there's a chapter in which I talk about the movement from what I define as heartbreak to resilience to equanimity. And all of a sudden I realized that uh, even though they speak English incredibly well, the word wasn't translating. And so I, so somebody asked, you know, what, what does that word mean? I don't really, I don't really get it. And so I said, so imagine you take a stone and you throw it into a pond and you see the ripples going out. And he says, okay. And I said, now imagine the ripples coming back. And that moment where it just, becomes calm again. He goes, ah, that's equanimity. Yes, that's equanimity. Um, The concept of equanimity is actually fairly well uh, discussed in most of the Buddhist uh, literature. As you know, uh, studying Buddhism now for about 18 years. And it's a word we use to describe the state that we really aspire to. Um, again, we're so often told that we want to be resilient. And I define resilience as the ability to take a punch. I'm a sometime boxer, so that term strikes me. But I make the point that the goal isn't to be resilient. The purpose of resilience is to achieve the goal, and the goal is equanimity. And uh, it's great that you started with this question because right now we're all being punched in the face every single day. Uh, whether it's uh, a challenge to the democracy and a question about whether or not the Republic will survive, a challenge to uh, the climate with the world feeling like it's on fire, literally to the racial reckoning that is long overdue, but is happening before our eyes, um, to the pandemic. Um, and we wake up every day to punch us in the face. And, and equanimity, resilience is the ability to wake up the next day. Equanimity is the capacity to be okay with that, not to disassociate from it not to be detached from it, but to be okay with it. Such a powerful story and example that you shared, especially with the origination of it for you. And as you mentioned, today there is just so much going on. There's a lot of noise in the world, an important noise that it's tough to process, right? There's 
so much going on, whether initially it started with a kind of medical emergency for the world, then it was an economic collapse, then it was an economic rebound. Then we experienced in front of our face, clear racial injustice that truthfully has always existed, but has now been surfaced and we're having more informed conversations around it. So it's tough to process what that looks like. In your life experience, you've gone through a lot as well. You speak to this in your book again, uh, early on during your experiences as a teenager, your experiences living through the 9-11 event and especially being in New York City, it was a very challenging moment and one that you're very open and raw with. So can you shine a light and then maybe even a parallel to that experience and to what's happening today so we can give people hope and give people the forward momentum to really progress? I'm happy to, to, to respond to that. And I want to be wary of false equivalences. And so what is happening now uh, is not what happened on 9 11 um, and yet, at the same time, there are uh, relatable connections between the two, and I think that's what you're reaching for there. Um, I'll come at the question from the angle of what happened for me when the towers collapsed 19 years ago. Um, it was like the facade of my life had fallen and the falsity with which I had lived my life was laid bare. And in a way, that is very, very similar to what we're experiencing right now, which is, for example, to speak about the questions around our relationships and our experience of race. The original sin of this nation, arguably the original sin of Western society, which is black slavery, for so many of us is now laid bare and undeniable. We can no longer hide in the privileged state of not seeing it. And what comes to mind is a quote from James Baldwin, which I'll try to remember precisely, which is, he said, not everything that is faced can be transformed, but nothing can be transformed until it's faced. And what the virus did and what the economic virus did was it revealed the original sin of Western society. And the reason is, and the relationship is, is that, that when we think about racial injustice, if we look at racial injustice, divorced from economic inequality and divorced from power differentials, uh, then we won't actually make any progress in changing things. And the thing about the healthcare crisis was that it revealed the economic inequality that is the substrate of our society. 
why do some live and why do some die? That's an economic issue, which is in effect linked to a prejudice issue, a biased issue. We are biased against uh, darker skinned folks. We are biased against people, and I, and, and I want to acknowledge that I am a white cisgendered male. We are biased against poor people. In fact, our society, the unconscious shadow-based expression is, we actually do not like poor people. We don't like the sick. We don't like the infirmed. We don't. We push them out of sight. Which means that we push out of sight most of the people in the world. Instead of doing what our wisdom traditions teach us, which is to lift them up. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, just to close the thought, the, the collapse of the towers fostered, forced an internal reckoning for me that is continuing now, where I have to look at, you know, you read my book, and the famous question in my book is, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? Well, the modern version of that is how have I benefited and been complicit with the conditions I say I no longer want? And what do I have to give up that I love and value in order to have the just world I say I want? Beautifully said, and I appreciate you sharing that. And I think that question alone is what fueled 2020 for me in a lot of different ways, not necessarily saying it was all positive. It, it created that radical self-inquiry that you so often promote and speak to. And I think there's so much value in inflection and going deep inside of ourselves to figure out who are we, how do we think about life? How do we appear every single day and really approach our daily work. And that's so important, but without recognizing the ghosts of the past, again, as to quote you, uh, but without recognizing those ghosts, especially the American ghosts, the Western culture ghosts that still exist and have now been surfaced in 2020, we're doing ourselves an injustice by not thinking about what's happening around us, how to improve it, how can we contribute in a meaningful, powerful, impactful way. So a lot of people, especially the, the listeners and the, the folks that I connect with are really in that millennial Gen Z age group. And they didn't ask for this, but they are basically taking this in right now as it comes, right? A lot of what's happening in society is a culmination of the past and a reflection of the past right now. So for them, they're stepping into this world, they're early in their career, they're early in their life, and they're trying to make sense of the noise and everything that's happening around them. And you've spent a lot of time personally figuring out how do I make sense of what's going on in my own head, in between my own two ears. Mm -hmm. So 
I think there's a lot of value in, in hoping to share with others how they can make sense of what's happening outside of themselves and inside of themselves. So what are some of the practices that you've built into your life that help you make sense of everything that's going on that really help you stay grounded? So um, I'll speak somewhat as a father because I have three children, Sam, Emma, and Michael, and they are uh, in order 30, 28, and 23. They are of the generations that you are speaking about. And um, there are a few things I would focus on, but the first is you used, you asked the question, how do they make sense of what's going on outside in the world and inside themselves? Okay. So one of the things that I've come to understand is that to approach that question in the way that you framed it is to exacerbate the problem. Mm. Meaning what is happening outside is a reflection of what's happening inside and what's happening inside is a reflection of what's happening outside. And for guidance on that, I turned to my teacher, my elder Parker Palmer, who wisely noted that violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with suffering. And I add to that violence to the planet, violence to community, violence to ourselves. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is true, then the answer lies within. It means that racism, for example, is an expression of unresolved suffering. You know, there's an old Zen aphorism, which is, which I bastardized a bit, which is this being so, so what? You'll remember that from the book. And the way to interpret that, here's the way to hear it. This is the world. What will you do about it? And so the call is to, while the answer is not necessarily to separate ourselves between what's the turmoil that's happening inside and the turmoil that's happening outside. And the, the call is not to take internalized responsibility for that. That's, an ex that's, that's a form of what's known as internalized oppression. It's all my fault. I am not worthy of. But to disconnect the two is not going to lead to any change. Right? What, what it leads to is legislation that's half-hearted. What it leads to are climate-related initiatives that that uh, fall so far short. Let's replace every incandescent light bulb with an LED light bulb. Now that's not insignificant, but it's not gonna move the needle. And so we have to actually simultaneously look at the ways in which we ourselves have work to do while simultaneously staying engaged in the work at large. And that's hard because human beings are wired to blame one or the other. It's either all their fault or it's all my fault. And the truth is we're all in this together. And systemic problems are not solved with point solutions. They're solved systemically. 
I agree with you again. And I appreciate you kind of reframing a lot of that where Mm -hmm. if we think about what's happening inside of ourselves and a lot of the experiences that we've had, where I often say is that we're a reflection of our past, rather we have an opportunity also to think through how do we build and create a life to tie in what you're saying is that we are happy with the conditions that we create for ourselves so that we can create sustainable change and create meaning and have an impact and hopefully positively influence people around us, whether it's friends, family, coworkers, if you're an executive, hopefully fostering a culture that promotes a healthy lifestyle for humans moving forward and a just lifestyle for many people as well. So again, I think there's something so valuable that I personally took away from what you teach is that we often mistake movement for meaning. Mm -hmm. And I find that so interesting. And to be very candid with you and with the audience is that I have been on a hamster wheel, I'd call it, for the last, I'd say, 10 years, right? I was super ambitious. I was hungry and I was achieving a lot. I collected the ABCs of degrees and truthfully, it didn't bring me the joy that I wanted. And now I've, I've pivoted and I am working with people and it's finally bringing me daily meaning. I'm still searching for that consistent meaning. So again, in your experience, you've worked with a lot of different executives and there's a lot going on right now, especially in 2020. What are you seeing from the perspective of people moving and thinking it might be meaning or are executives today really making the right strides and being kind of thoughtful of what they're doing day by day, thoughtful about the steps that they take to create meaning? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I'm not going to answer the question. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to take you back to your own hamster wheel. Because, uh, Edward, I I think you already know the answer to the question. I'm going to bring you back to it for a moment. You said that you spent 10 years on a hamster wheel. You were super hungry. And it didn't bring you the joy that you wanted. Why did you go on the hamster wheel in the first place? Great question. And I'm comfortable answering that for you. So as we spoke before, I mentioned to you, and I share this often that I'm a product of immigrants. I moved here when I was five years old. And for my parents, a lot of what they wanted and needed was stability and safety, right? As many human beings need, because growing up in the Soviet Union, you don't have that stability and safety. Uh, There was communism mixed with dictatorship, mixed with oligarchies and bureaucracy. And they came to America wanting stability uh, and they wanted comfort. So what they gave me is that comfort. They worked hard. They afforded me a life where I could hopefully create more for myself. But what they encouraged me to do is to find a stable, job, stable corporate job. And then as I went into an electric utility company, which is at the time back in 2011, seemed like the most stable job you can find in the Bay Area. 
being surrounded by so many people who are creative thinkers and pursued tech, I felt a friction between being in a stable environment that my parents wanted and having assimilated to the American culture where you can create and you can achieve a lot more. So I felt this pressure to constantly stay in stability where I personally knew that other things brought me joy, which was helping people. I'm going to stay with you for a moment and I promise we will circle back to the, to the question that you had, which was why do other executives do certain things? Um, you're how old? 35? I'm 31. 31. So you came 10 years ago? No. So I, I started college in 2007. I came to the States in 1994. 1994. And um, their parents are in their 60s? They're 50s? actually in their mid-50s. 50s, okay. Uh, what part of the Soviet Union were they in? So we grew up, or they grew up in Odessa, Ukraine. Okay. Uh, but they identify as Russian. So that's another interesting question is how uh -huh. do we identify? Because to be even more forthright, they grew up in Ukraine. They're, we're Jewish. So being in the Soviet Union, for those who might not know, post-World War II, there's still a lot of anti-Semitism. There still is across the world, but especially in the Soviet Union, you were labeled as being Jewish on your passport. They were not Ukrainian. They were not Russian. They spoke Russian. They were Jewish. And so you have this mixed sense of identity, right? Because you associate one way, but then you speak a very different language. Right. And in the 1950s in Ukraine, which had been, quote, the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, there was a famine. Am I remembering correctly? You're spot on. And that was a result of the misguided government-directed five-year plan, which thought that they were going to control, I suppose, the environment. And they destroyed the wheat production. Um, and so part of the ghost in your machine, to use a term from the book, part of the lineage is a pogrom. Part of the lineage is to never feel that you belong because what is my identity? Part of the lineage is to constantly feel hungry. Okay. So hold those thoughts in mind and tell me again why the hamster hopped on the wheel <laughs> and was super hungry. Truthfully, for me, it feels like it was a realization of what my parents maybe wanted or needed and wanted to live. And I think oftentimes we hear that some parents want to live vicariously through their children. And I think I went through this process because it was the life that they wanted to create for me and they did it well. And I was able to go through college. I'm very fortunate they paid for college. I didn't end up in debt like many individuals do. So I'm very grateful for everything they afforded me. 
but it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what brought me joy. It wasn't what brought me meaning. It wasn't the momentum that I wanted to build. I built a lot of momentum in working hard and got really good grades, went to good schools, ended up pivoting a lot to constantly try to pursue more. And then most recently, again, as I openly speak about being at WeWork, I accomplished a lot. I felt like I finally got to that mountaintop that I wanted to get to, but it wasn't necessarily, again, what brought me joy. Right. So um, when we do the radical self-inquiry work, as I'm taking you through right now, the point is not to fix blame. The point is not to say, well, who's the guilty party? The point is to live into that aphorism I noted before, this being so, so what? So the reality for you, which is true for all of us, is that we are motivated by conscious forces and unconscious forces. And in this case, like many people, the unconscious forces that drive you, that caused you to be on the hamster wheel, that caused you to mistake motion for meaning, actually have a lineage aspect to it. And I'm gonna play with the metaphor of staying hungry, being hungry, feeling unsafe, certainly not feeling loved by the community, and therefore not being sure of belonging. Notice that as a vector operating kind of under the ground. Notice, too, the belief system, which was, if I get to the top of the mountain, then I will be safe, loved, and finally belong. I can't be kicked out. I can't have a passport stamped with the words Jew or the word Jew or Jewish, right? Thus existentially threatening me if I get to the top of the mountain. And you note that like all children, we carry the unfinished business of our parents. Now your parents did nothing wrong. In fact, they did a lot of good. And injecting that hunger into you was a source of great accomplishment for you. This is what makes it really confusing. You wanted to speak about millennials. This is one of the things that makes it really, really confusing to be somewhere between 20 and 40 years old because you're beginning to realize that those forces are impacting you. And should you be angry or should you be happy? that your parents made you hungry, so hungry that you would hop on a hamster wheel. Is it their fault? Is it a bad thing or a good thing? This being so, so what? This is who you are. The operative question, and I'll quote Carl Jung now, the operative question stems from his observation, his statement, I am not what has happened to me, I am what I choose to become. So knowing a bit about your structure, the question now is, in what ways might you continue to be on the hamster wheel? In what ways are you still hungry? Go ahead. Hey there, listeners. 
I just wanted to pop in and let you know that as a part of Career Meets World, I am now taking on exclusive one-on-one -on -one clients who are hungry leaders or entrepreneurs and want to learn how to succeed under immense pressure. I believe that being an effective business leader is equal parts understanding your subconscious and developing and executing a personalized growth plan. These two aspects continually build upon each other and my coaching practice is designed to amplify your confidence levels and provide you a toolkit to thrive in any situation. Career Meets World is the ultimate achievement partner and we support our clients with an always on approach. So if you're ready to unleash your wildest leadership potential and take control of your success, find Career Meets World or me personally, Edward Gorbis, on LinkedIn and shoot me a short message about your goals with the title, Let's Start. And now it's time to get back to today's episode. It's a perfect question and one that I have started to journal about every single day is how do I take the good that my parents taught me and that excellent discipline and work ethic and that relentlessness that has carried me forward the last 10 years. But how do I channel that same energy and really help more people? Because that's my mission going forward. That's what truly brings me joy is to lock arms with people. Similar to what you've been able to successfully do for so many years is really lock arms and channel that same level of discipline and work relentlessly to help them and really identify ways where they're struggling or where they might need reassurance, right? That I think that's a huge part of humanity is being reassured that, am I moving the right way? Am I going the right way? Is this the right thing to do? And that's what I felt a lot of the time is, am I going in the right direction to create stability? Am I going to create a place where I don't have to suffer from hunger, literally? So for me, it's just taking a lot of that good and driving it forward and helping as many people as I can. And that's what I want to take away. That's what I've learned. And I've been able to experience a lot of valuable moments through my corporate career and through a lot of conversations around the globe through travel. But now it's really about empowering others. So um, one of the things that we just did was we, we surfaced something really important, which was the positive and negative attributes of lineage and, and ancestral assignments, if you will. And it's really important to understand that so much of our motivation, so much, so much of our choices that we make, that we think we're making consciously, are actually being motivated by unconscious forces that uh, look through one particular lens can be deemed either negative or positive, okay? I wanna drop the negative and positive piece of this. And I wanna bring you back to a question and I promise you we will get back to your question. But I have another question for you. Let's do it. So imagining that you are motivated by unconscious forces that may, through that lens, be seen as either positive or negative. Tell me why helping people, empowering people, is your mission. 
I never felt like I had the type of help that I wanted. My parents, as you mentioned, a lot of parents provide guidance, uh, at least I believe this, a lot of parents provide guidance to their son or daughter to help them continue the life that they sought after, right? Or finish the unfinished business. And for me, it's more around, well, I did what they wanted essentially is I created stability. I got a good job. I got a couple of great degrees. I'm living a very good life and I'm very, very aware of that. That being said, am I experiencing the joy that I believe that humans should strive for as they move forward through life? No, I wasn't. So I really want to be a partner to people because I didn't have the right type of partner that I needed in that moment to tell me, hey, it's okay to pursue coaching. It's okay if you want to be an artist. It's okay if you want to go surf across the world. It's okay if you want to be a health coach. Again, I think for my parents, and this is by no means blame, it's acknowledgement, but for my parents, it was more around, I want to make sure that you're safe. And I want to make sure that you could put literally food on the table. And I've done that and I can do that. And I'm fortunate. I have that baseline now, but now I, I have this freedom and liberty to explore and again, provide other people that opportunity to do the same thing, knowing that if they pursue what they want, the money will come at some point. Just focus on creating value, focus on helping the world, society, and individual through whatever gift that you're given. And uh, I want to reflect back that uh, you said something very revealing and tender at the very top of that statement. Uh, which was that you want to be the voice that you yourself yearn to have heard. Absolutely. The, pers the person who says that, you, that it's okay to have this. So um, I'm going to suggest that what we do is elevate that wish and reframe the entire experience with the notion that in order for you to live into your fully actualized self, your wish is to help others fully live into their actualized self. Right? The actualized self, the top of that Maslow hierarchy. Right? And so the base of that hierarchy is to not be hungry. Right? It is not a choice. Either I stay focused on staying not hungry or I live the life that I want to live. The opportunity is for you to stand as an ally with people to realize a fully actualized self where they are both well fed and that their soul is nourished. Mm. And in doing so, you get to do that yourself. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So let's go back to your original question. Why do executives do this? Now answer your own question. Why do executives hop on the hamster wheel 
and a mistake motion for meaning. I think there's a couple of points to it that I just recognize through going through that and I appreciate all of the questions. But for me, the takeaways are that one, oftentimes we launch and move without understanding the goal and understanding our true why. Why are we doing this? What is the driving force behind it? And then truly asking ourselves, and the second point is, what is this going to do for me? What value is this going to bring to my life? And my understanding is that many executives move forward, maybe in a similar fashion that I did for whatever the driving force was for them, but maybe didn't stop to really question what matters to them and what momentum are they building? Because I truly believe we can build momentum in any way possible as long as we keep focused on contributing and doing hard work every single day that would drives momentum but to me i've seen a lot of good executives a lot of executives who might benefit from this type of conversation i'm not going to call them bad executives i just want to acknowledge that they're going through something they've never had the opportunity to reflect and again i'll credit you for for really launching me onto this journey. And, and for anyone who doesn't know, that's really the impetus of why I felt empowered to continue down this road as I read your book back in February of 2020, which now feels like forever ago, is recognizing that I myself was mistaking movement for meaning. But then I looked at everyone around me, especially at WeWork, and a lot of people there mistake movement for meaning. And maybe tying back everything that you had said earlier about the chaos that we're experiencing in the world and in life today is because we've just continued to move without really pausing as a society and thinking through what is going on. How can we be better individuals? How can we be better leaders, mentors, teachers, parents, you name it, whatever your title is on a day-to-day -day basis. And you probably wear many different hats, but how do we become better people? So Am I close? What am I missing? Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah you're, you're very close. And, I, and thank you. And what I like about what happened just now was that I coached you to turn inward in order to understand the outward expression so that your understanding of the outward behavior was rooted in an empathetic stance. And so you get to ask the question, Oh, or make the statement, oh, like me, that person is hungry. The particulars of their life are different, but like me, they are this. So therefore, when you seek to empower and seek to help, it's not from a superior position, which is bullshit and false, but from the shoulder to shoulder allyship of, oh, like me, they are motivated here. I want to make note of one other thing you said in describing these executives, these mythological executives, and we're probably talking about a bunch of your colleagues at WeWork, so just kidding. <laughs> um, they never had the opportunity to self-reflect. Okay, I'm going to reframe that observation, and I'm going to cut through it because we're short on time. Let's imagine, if you will, that it's not about 
some external force saying, you don't have the opportunity to self-reflect. You're too busy. But it's in fact an internal force, maybe even an internal need that says, you don't have the opportunity to self-reflect. What need might be being met by the entire construct that says, you're too busy to think about these things. Because, because if I poke on the constructs of my life, the thing may collapse like a house of cards. They may have a need to not have the time for self-reflection. What kind of world do you think we would live in if we had pure education reform, which we haven't talked about yet? (laughs) But what I've seen and what I, again, wish I had and would love to provide for students of all age, right? It doesn't matter if you're in kindergarten, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, an opportunity to create a momentum going forward where students know the importance and the value of daily reflection, maybe be through journaling, through walks, through meditation, whatever the form or medium is, what value might that bring? And what, what advice would you give to a young person today who is curious about this practice, but might not be somebody who has walked through it on a consistent basis? Your, your, your question made me laugh because it reminded me of something a, a dear friend once said to me. Her name is Tracy. She said to me early in her practice as a meditator, she said, you Buddhists, you think all we have to do is sit on the meditation cushion. What if we did that? What, what would happen if the, everybody just got happy? And I said, I don't know. The world might be a better place. <laughs> um, again, I'm going to poke at the premise of the question because you want to link it to education reform. And I get it. Part of what you're asking is we don't teach We don't elevate insight and introspection as part of our education system. On the other hand, there is nothing that I'm saying that Socrates didn't say already. There's nothing that I'm saying that Marcus Aurelius didn't say already. There's nothing I'm saying that the great religious and spiritual teachers haven't already said. Okay? And don't externalize responsibility for your internal happiness. It is not the fault of the education system. Mm-hmm. The fault lies not within the stars, but within ourselves. The call, the act of growing up is not some, something that somebody else can prompt you to do. You have to do it yourself. Student came to one of the great Buddhist teachers and said, Master, what is the path to enlightenment? And he lifted up his robes and he showed his bare ass and he pointed at the calluses. You sit your ass down on the cushion, metaphorically, of course. (laughs) Okay, it's not somebody else's fault. I get you weren't developed, you didn't have the tools. Read. Read, read, 
And if you can't read, have someone read for you. Talk to your friends. You don't need a coach. You don't need a therapist to do this work. You do the work. I hate to be harsh. I sound harsh right now. You're not harsh at all. You're honest and real. And personally, that's what I value, especially now as I've grown and as I continue down this journey of life myself is being open and honest with myself. And as you pointed out, I personally, and I will admit, have a tendency to point blame at a system more, not so much individuals, but more so a system because that's the easiest thing to blame. It's a mythical thing. It's a construct that exists. However, we all created these systems, our ancestors, our parents, our grandparents. And now we have the opportunity to recreate them, even if it's brick by brick, conversation by conversation. And that's what I intend to continue doing and continue my own personal self-inquiry process, as I recommend to many other people now, in understanding what do you value? How are you complicit? How are you helping yourself help others? So I appreciate all the questions. It is definitely an anomaly for conversations. And I think it's really valuable. And I'm very open and honest with people about where I came from, how I feel, what created who I am today. However, I also know that who I was the last 10 years can evolve and grow and mature. And that's what I, again, hope for many other people is that they can look inside themselves and understand that you don't have to be a prisoner of your past. You can be an architect of the future as Robin Sharma says. So I appreciate everything, Jerry, uh, but I'm not going to let you off the hook because I appreciate the hot seat on my end. I do want to ask you some lighthearted and fun questions really to get to know you more and maybe get some perspective. I value what you teach, how you've taught the process that you've gone through. I love your book and I definitely recommend Reboot for anybody listening because you can see what it's done for me and the questions that it's challenged me to ask myself. But I'd love to know, what are some of the books that you're reading nowadays? What are some of the most impactful books for you in 2020? Uh, well, uh, I'll say right now I'm in the middle of a book uh, on uh, a Tibetan village known as Nakba, uh, which was the main force, uh, the main locus of many self-immolations, people burning themselves alive. But your second question was the most impactful books that I'm reading. And what comes to mind is a book I read um, a couple of weeks ago called See No Stranger by Valerie Kaur, K-A-U-R. Uh, many folks know her. She has a very widely viewed uh, TED Talk uh, Valerie is a sick, uh, anti-racist, Black-centered activist um, uh, who brings the sick uh, spiritual tradition into the work that she does. And um, the notion that we are called to see no stranger is a really powerful metaphor for um, coming to understand 
how to truly live an anti-racist life. Um, it's actually quite personal, which is to cut through the bullshit and to see no stranger. And, and with that, she is um, uh, quoting uh, the founder of the Sikh religion. Um, many people refer to it, by the way, as Sikh, but uh, Sikh is one of the pronunciations. Um, so that's that that probably that's the book that comes to mind quickly. Okay, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Oh, and then Sharon Salzberg's Real Change, which I read while it was in production, and that just came out, and that's also a powerful book for these times, which is about how do we create and manifest the change that needs to happen right now. So. Um, Appreciate that. Uh, I will definitely share those out and, and take a look myself. Those all sound really solid. I'm curious, I know that you've been fortunate to speak out and share your journey, your story through books, through teaching, through a lot of different podcasts as well. And I'm curious to ask you if there is anything that you'd be willing to share that you're still going through that you're learning today that maybe despite, not despite, but having gone through this long journey of self-inquiry, what are you still learning about yourself today? I'll answer that question by noting that uh, a long time ago, before I started teaching in a local college, former high school teacher of mine gave me the advice that I should teach the questions I wanted answers. And so in the first book I wrote, uh, I was asking questions that I wanted answers to. Mm. Okay. Um, and so I don't see myself as having answers. I see myself as having a shit ton of questions. <laughs> and right now, the questions I'm working with, and, and I'm beginning the process of, of designing the next book, are really questions that have arisen since the book came out, which have to do with how we define ourselves. What is our sense of belonging? What does that mean? And so very similar to the kinds of themes that we've been talking about. Now, why is that relevant for me right now? It's relevant for me right now because I continue to try to figure out what is my place in the world? I'm a white cisgendered male of power and privilege. What is my role in creating the world that I want to see? I don't want to. I don't want to die without having put my shoulder to that wheel. And to acknowledge that you're, you've gone through this process for quite a while of realizing that you weren't leading the life that you wanted, and you looked inside yourself. It was probably what 18, 19 years ago, and that process continues for you, and it doesn't stop. And that's the reminder. We have the opportunity till the last days on earth to continue to get better and to help and support others and to empower others. So I appreciate you being open about the fact that this is a continual journey for you. It doesn't stop any day. I'll, I'll bring your attention to the last line of the formal book, which is, and with that, I mastered the art of growing up. Um, the subtitle of the book is Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Um, it's a practice. I, I, I won't stop until I'm dead. 
So I'll never be grown up. I'll just always be growing up. So with that, we're going to do something interesting, which is I'll ask you to ask a question because Mm. you, you clearly mentioned that you love asking questions. And in the spirit of trying to tie everything together, uh, this is my attempt, but really as a lot of young leaders step into the world or aspiring young leaders, what would be a question that you recommend they ask themselves? At the end of your days, when your meat bag just decomposes into the earth in whatever form it does, what would you like people to say about your time on this planet? And if you're not living towards that, what are you doing? So that's a pointed, non-open question. But it welcomes deep thought and deep creativity. So with that, Jerry, I know that a lot of our listeners would love to get to know you, get to connect with you, stay in tune with your work and the practice that you've built what's an easy way for them to connect with you? Well, the simplest thing is I would recommend signing up uh, to receive the newsletter and uh, podcast, uh, which you publish every two weeks or so. Um, and then, of course, the book. You can, you can sign up for the newsletter at Reboot.io, and you can uh, track all things book-related at RebootByJerry.com. Um, uh, you, know, you can buy 10 copies of the book, read it, reach, read each one individually. That's always fun. <laughs> Just kidding. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for spending time with us today. And I really appreciate the, the process that we just went through. It means a lot to me. And again, I recommend the book. I will recommend it to as many people as I meet, partly because it has such a meaningful impact on my life. So thank you so much. And as we always say at Career Mates World, go unleash your wildest potential. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Career Mates World podcast. I would love to get to meet you. There are a couple of ways we can connect. You know I love my LinkedIn. Simply search for Career Mates World or Edward Gorbis and feel free to connect. Second is via Instagram at careermeetsworld. And third is through our website. I have a special spot for you full of fun, free resources. All you have to do is go to careermeetsworld.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll provide you the free resources to help you boost your career and reach financial freedom. And if this podcast was helpful to you in any way, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people. Simply tap the rate with five stars and leave a sentence with what you liked about the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, strengthening your growth mindset is your ticket to success. I'm Edward Gorbis, and we'll catch you on next week's episode.